Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. You know, one of the, the great things about the Christmas season is that um, the idea of receiving gifts at Christmas uh, is great because it is by definition grace. Uh, it's that feeling of receiving an overwhelming gift that you truly don't deserve. I mean, that's what grace is, right? It's receiving something undeserved or un, unmerited, uh, and that's what every gift is. It's, it's something that is not deserved. By very nature, the word gift means that it's something that you are given without anything that you've done in order to earn that thing. Uh, that makes me really love our church. Uh, you guys are such a giving church. You love to give to one another. You love to to just give out of the, the overflow of your hearts, and and it is just that. It's, it's grace to one another. It's not expecting, I'm going to give that person the gift, but they better give me something back. No, it's never like that, right? You give them simply because that's in your heart, because in the heart of believers is grace, at least to some extent, though imperfectly, when we give gifts, that's exactly what it is. And really, that's what one of the things I love about Christmas is the spirit of grace that we see around us. But you ever receive a Christmas gift from someone and you have this little place and you were like, thank you. But I don't know, deep down, you feel sort of ashamed because you know you're never going to use it. You guys ever have that feeling? You know what I mean? With the, the fan, I lost all a nod. Uh oh. You know what I mean? Like, somebody, the family member gives you a gift and you're like, oh, thanks. And you're like, this is going to collect dust. Or heaven forbid, I'm going to re-gift this. Right? I know some of you do that stuff, right? Uh, you know, I have a, a family member that gave me a, a gift years ago and every time I look at it, I feel so bad because I've still never used it. But I can't bring myself to give it away or whatever, th- th- toss it even because it's a gift, it's a gracious gift. And I can't say what that family member's role is in my life, and I can't even say what that gift is because the sermon's online, and so you'll just never know, okay? Uh, but I feel terrible whenever I, I'm given a gracious gift and then I never utilize that gift. You see, the reason I say that is that God gives perfect gifts. Uh, and while maybe you don't use a gift that's not so perfect, God gives perfect gifts. And how shameful it is if we set aside those gifts to just collect dust. He gives perfect gifts. How shameful for us to just never use it. And let it collect dust. Utilize the gifts that God's given us. He's given us many. We say that in that song, count your many blessings. That's what blessings are. They're gifts from God. The greatest of those gifts is the person of Jesus. And certainly we want to utilize that gift and come to faith and trust in Christ and utilize that gift daily and lean on the presence of Christ in our lives. But he gives us many gifts. Jobs, friendships, family members, finances. And the list goes on and on and on. Food, shelter, a place to live. And we should give God glory in receiving those gifts. Those things exist for a reason. They exist for the glory of God. And so we want to utilize those gifts in giving Him glory. But one of those gifts that I want to talk about this morning is the book of John. And really all of our Bibles. But the book of John is such a gift. And so the reason I say that this morning is that, church, please don't waste the moments that we're in this book. Don't waste them. You sit here and we listen, but don't let these things fall on deaf ears and figuratively collect dust in your mind. Well, utilize the gift of the book of John and let's look and learn and utilize this gift in the season of gifts because I promise you that God has something wonderful in this book for us every Sunday, but this morning, of course. All right, let's look at it. John 20 is where we're going to be today. John 20, verses 24 through 29. John 20, verses 24 
through 29. If you have a Bible, wonderful. Go ahead and get there. If not, it should be on the screen behind me as I read here, okay? John 20, verses 24 through 29. This is what John has written down for us. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, or maybe Didymus in your translation, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We've been looking the past uh, two weeks at some pretty amazing uh, parts of the narrative of the book of John. Moments recorded by John immediately following the resurrection. We've looked at individuals or groups of individuals and the examples that we see in their responses to the resurrected Jesus. In this passage, John is going to single out one guy, the man Thomas, because Thomas' encounter with the resurrected Christ teaches us something that the others do not. And we've looked at it the last two weeks with Mary and John and the disciples that we see different things in different encounters. The same is true of Thomas. What we learn from the others, we learn from the person of John when he saw the the face wrap and the the cloths that wrapped Jesus' body sitting there on the floor and it snapped in his mind. He said, wow, my life will never be the same. We see transformed living is the response that we should receive from that. And Mary Magdalene, she is awestruck. Wonder is in her eyes. And Jesus tells her, I want you to go and tell my brothers that I'm alive. It's the first time in the book of John that he's called these guys his brothers, which means that the father is their father. And we saw from that that something that we can receive a response is that we are now called sons and daughters of God, which is an amazing privilege. And then last week we looked at the disciples. But Jesus appeared to these guys out of thin air, nowhere, just boom, there he was. And they were overwhelmed with gladness. And then they were sent on mission, not alone, but under the power of God. And now we're going to look at Thomas. So what is the principle? What do we receive as instruction from this resurrection encounter? Well, we're going to look at two principal gifts from doubting Thomas. That's going to be our structure this morning. Two principal gifts from doubting Thomas. <clears throat> principal gifts from doubting Thomas. Number one is to utilize the gift of God's Word. To utilize the gift of God's Word. Thomas is is given a gift in this passage, and the gift is a resurrection encounter like we've seen in the last couple of weeks. But Thomas is an interesting biblical figure. We only see him a handful of times in the book of John, and even all of the Gospels really, just a few times. We know him probably by the name Doubting Thomas. But I'm going to tell you guys something. That's a little unfair, all right? Is he doubting? Yeah, he's doubting. But I think it's a little bit of an unfair label to slap on this guy. Is Thomas really the doubter? Well, if you look at the whole text, if you look at the whole book of John even, we see that he is arguably the most loyal disciple to Jesus in life. 
He's arguably the most loyal. We looked at him in chapter 11, verse 16. Remember when Jesus was saying, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. This is right after people picked up stones to stone him and they bailed. They got out of there to Bethel. And then Jesus says, guys, guess what? I'm going back to Jerusalem. And they're all like, Jesus, are you crazy? You can't go back to that place. They just tried to murder you. And then Thomas says, we'll go. Even if we die with you, we'll go. Doubter? Doubting Thomas? No, he seems loyal to me. But at the same time, we see that he does, in fact, doubt. His willingness to die with Jesus is then followed by this strange situation where he's doubting. But he's probably not any more of a doubter than maybe a a Peter or most of the others. I mean, remember just a couple of weeks ago, Peter saw the garments on the ground. He had great reason to believe garments on the ground. Jesus wasn't in the tomb, and then he walks away, and the Gospels tell us that he was confused. And it wasn't until Jesus appeared to Peter that he believed. So doubting Thomas, yeah, maybe. But at the same time, while Jesus appeared to the ten that evening, Thomas wasn't there. Now Thomas is known as the doubter because of this passage, but he was sort of a victim of circumstance. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, Didymus, just probably means he had a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see In his hands, the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That sounds like doubt, doesn't it? So yeah, he's doubting Thomas, but I want you guys to see, let's peel back the layers here. Did he doubt? Of course he did. But John doesn't single him out for his doubt, the, the fact that his doubt made him special, but rather because Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus appeared in that locked room just a week ago that we looked at. It's funny. Thomas' response is a little comedic to me. We know that Jesus is alive, so we can kind of laugh at his response, okay? He says, I believe that you think you saw Jesus. That's my translation, okay? I believe that well, you, you think that's what you saw, but I'm telling you guys, he's dead. And unless I see it for myself, there's no possible way I'm going to believe this crazy thing you guys are saying. I believe you think you saw him. Maybe you saw a ghost or a spirit or whatever. That seems to be the tone. A few years ago, while I was in college, <clears throat> I was... Uh, it was back when Twitter, and some of you guys know what Twitter is. Some of you guys are like, what are you talking about? Just follow me. Social media, all right? I reached out to a, a professional basketball player. Um, his name is Rudy Gay. He was one of my favorite basketball players back then. He played for the Memphis Grizzlies that, uh, up just a few hours away from us at the FedEx Forum. And this is back before everybody was on Twitter. It was 2009. And I reached out to Rudy Gay, and I said, you know, great game, whatever. It's a neat way for you to communicate with Big famous people, right? Sports athletes and stuff. So I reached out to him and, and told him, I was like, I've never been to a game, but like, man, I'm a big fan, whatever. He reaches back out to me and he follows me on Twitter, which is just a way of saying that he was my friend, I guess. I don't, not really, but our language, right? It's weird. So and he says, <clears throat> next time you're in Memphis, let me know and I'll get you tickets. I'm not making that up. And so you know what I said? Funny you say that. I'll be in Memphis this weekend. I really said that. And so he told me, he's like, okay, I got, I got you taken care of. And so sure enough, long story short, I got tickets to a basketball game because of a professional basketball player. Hooked me up. It's one of the coolest things ever, right? I'm sitting in my seat during the game. He's never seen me. I've never seen him. But he knows where those seats were. He has to know where those seats are. And there's a timeout on the floor. And we're not that far up, okay? We're pretty, I mean, his seats, they're his family members and friends. And so I'm sitting there with my friend Will. And Rudy Gay is coming off the court. And he looks right at me. For real. And I, and I do something like this, you know, real cool. Like, I was just like, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of like, a, hey, you know, real discreet. Like, I didn't want to be like that weird guy that, you know, 
But he did something like this. He's like, like that. I told Will that, and he's like, I believe you think that happened. <laughs> and guess what? I told Brooke the same thing, and she says, yeah, I believe you think he said what's up to you in the middle of the basketball game. He said it, whether you believe it or not. It really happened, okay? But that's kind of what's going on here. Is that what Thomas is saying, I believe that you think that you saw that. But the disciples know it to be very true. This is exactly what happened. And yet Thomas is filled with unbelief. I believe you think you saw Jesus. You see, the problem here is what we've seen before in 1 Corinthians when we walked through that as a church, as well as in the book of John. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says that Jews demand signs. They don't believe. They demand signs. They want to see wonders in order to back up their belief. In John 4, 48, there's an official that's asking Jesus to come and heal his son. We've gone through this passage, remember? An official asking Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's Thomas. That's Thomas. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Compared to somebody like John, who two weeks ago we saw that John just saw the face trap on the ground and said, he is alive. I don't have to see him. He's alive. Thomas is demanding a sign. Even still. Jesus, in his all-knowing and all-present sovereignty, takes up the challenge of Thomas to teach him and John's reader something a week later. Look at verse 26. So Thomas is doubted, and then verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. I'm going to pause for just a second. It says eight days later. Okay, That's opposed to Sunday. Now, in our language, we'd say eight days later from Sunday would be Eight days, I mean, the the following, not the next Monday, but the Monday after that. But in the Jewish language, they included the day that they were on in that count. In other words, eight days later, and your translation, translation may even say a week later, if it's more of a paraphrase, because that's exactly what it was. It was a week to the day, meaning it was Sunday. Now, why do I say that? Because it's resurrection day again. It's the same reason that we worship on Sundays, because we're coming here celebrating once again the resurrection of Jesus. Because he did it on the first day of the week, as we saw at the, book, the first of, of John chapter 20. So, the next Sunday, this is what happens. The rest of verse 26. Thomas was with them. <clears throat> Look, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, he said, peace be with you. Now, if you were here last week, this verse should sound very familiar. It's a restart of what happened when all the disciples first encountered Jesus. Remember, the doors were locked. No way Jesus should just all of a sudden be in this room. Then Jesus appears miraculously and he says the same thing. He says, peace be with you. Which last week we looked at this. There's too much repetition here for this to just be some arbitrary greeting. More than a greeting of uh, shalom or, or, or you know, peace be with you. Good to see you guys. It's more than just that. This is more than a greeting. It's a victorious proclamation. We're at enmity with God when we come into this world. Peace be with us. You better believe it. Because Jesus purchased for you, as he is the Prince of Peace, peace with the Holy God. You come into this world at enmity with him, at conflict with him, at war with God, a sinner. But when Jesus vacated that tomb after suffering on a bloody cross, being the substitute for you in your death, and then conquering the grave, he can triumphantly, victoriously state, peace be with you. Cosmic peace for the criminal. That's what Jesus is declaring here. Once again, it's a, it's a restart of what happened the week before. But instead of instructing the group now, like the week prior, he turns to one guy. He turns to Thomas. Verse 27. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus calls out Thomas's skepticism. He wasn't even there when Thomas made this doubting you know, claim a week ago, but he heard it. He hears all. He knows all. He says, here, Thomas, come on over. I heard your skepticism. Come touch the wounds yourself. Come and see. And the implication is that Thomas didn't even touch the wounds. You notice it doesn't say that. It says that he answered. That's the very next word. He answered Jesus. The implication is not that he walked over and, and stuck his hand in the wounds. No. The implication is that the mere sight of the physical yet clearly divine Jesus was enough for him to be struck with awe and utter the confession that we see in verse 28. We'll look at it in a minute. We'll examine that. But Thomas needed to see the wounds to believe and he was privileged to be afforded that opportunity. He was privileged, wasn't he? What an opportunity. What a gift that he was given. But here's the thing. John, the apostle, writes to men and women who never will be given that privilege in their lifetimes. This book, the Gospel of John, is firsthand written to Jewish and Gentile believers and unbelievers 35 years after this happened. 35 years. That's a long time. Men and women that will never see the wounds, stick their hands in the gash. What's John's goal? John's goal is to write these things down that they may be able to confess in faith just like Thomas, even without seeing the wounds. Or to take John's words, I've written these things down that you may have life. That you may see even though you don't see. Jesus' response here in verse 27, the last part. Just put your finger here, see my hands, put your hand, place it on my side. Look what he says here. Do not disbelieve but believe. It means don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Because you now witness proof, do not be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Imagine being a believer in Jesus. Imagine being a disciple in the 30-year span between Jesus' ascension and the compilation of the gospel accounts, the compilation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Imagine being a believer, a disciple, before these gospels were written down. John is telling them, I'm writing this stuff down. So it is as if you are seeing the wounds yourself. You can't be there. But I'm writing these things down so that you don't have to be. So that it's like you're beholding them yourself. Church, this side of heaven, no one in this room will behold the wounds. No one in this room, this side of heaven, will see the nails and the holes from the nails. Will see the the gash in the side of Jesus. But listen, this book... This is the way that you behold the wounds of Jesus. You couldn't be there. You don't get to be Thomas. But that's the point. Is that John wrote these things down so that you wouldn't have to be. What a gift, right? What a gift this is. You know, we read books and we watch movies to put ourselves in places and in times that we weren't. I wasn't alive during the Civil War. Neither were you. You may think that you're old. You're not that old, okay? No one in this room was there for the Civil War. But 
I can read books, I can watch documentaries, and so forth and so on, that almost make me smell the gunpowder at Gettysburg and feel the fear and the courage of teenagers fighting for the emancipation of slaves made in the image of God. Was I there? No, I wasn't. But I can almost taste it and see it with my senses. Because people were faithful to transmit those ideas that I could see them. You see, my absence in history doesn't make those events any less real. But I thank God for those who documented these moments for men like me to experience them with my senses generations later. The same is true of the gospel. The same is true of the gospel. John and dozens others wrote down the wonders of God. Why? So that though you were absent, you could look on those things and look on with those who saw them firsthand. You, know, you can watch the passion of the Christ and it's helpful to add senses of sight, seeing the wounds. And listen, it's a brutal movie. It helps some. It does because it helps to see those, those wounds and the beatings. But that's not Jesus. And it may help them to watch that movie. But listen, church, you don't have to. You don't have to. Because God Himself, listen, God Himself has transmitted to you the facts. You don't get to be Thomas. But you can behold the wounds of Jesus all the same. It's simple. Reading your Bible is the only way in this life that you can place your hands in the nail holes and see the God that has conquered the grave. It's the only way that you can see that peace be with you is more than a greeting. It's a victorious anthem. Sometimes I myself, and I'm sure you too, like you find yourself longing for a sign. Church, you've got pages and pages and pages of signs. Feel the wounds. Read the pages that brought you victory. Don't let it collect dust, in other words. Number two. Principal gifts from doubting Thomas. <clears throat> Utilize the gift of God's Word. And number two, daily confess. I put in quotes there, declare. Thomas's words are a confession, but daily confess or declare my aim in life. Daily confess or declare my aim in life. <clears throat> you know, Thomas would be accepted by God in faith, and we're going to see that next. What a gracious gift that is from God to be accepted by Him. It's the confession of His faith that I want to examine next. Look at verses 28 and 29. Thomas answered him. This is so good, y'all. Thomas answered him. My Lord and my God. And can you imagine the volume? Of that proclamation. I see an exclamation point in my Bible. It was loud. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This, this reads weird. And even in studying it, it read sort of weird to me because it sort of seems like Jesus is getting on to him. But I did some studying, and that's really not what's happening here. This isn't so much of a, a rebuke from Jesus as it is a statement of fact. Thomas's faith was anchored in his sight. Yeah, it's faith, but it's easy faith. Jesus shows himself to Thomas. For the readers, the first readers that is, 35 years after the fact, and the millions of readers that would come after them, this last statement is directed right at us, isn't it? 
This statement is directed right at us. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word blessed, it doesn't just mean to be happy. Happy are those. That's not what it means. This word, what it literally means is accepted by God. I want to reread it then. Accepted by God are those that make the same confession, but do so without beholding my resurrected body. Accepted by God are the people that make that confession that you just made, Thomas, without beholding my resurrected body. Well, what makes this confession so special? That Jesus would see it and say, that's a good confession. What makes it so special? What's special? It's amazing, really. You see, Thomas looks at Jesus in awe. Now, we read this with 21st century Christian Bible Belt eyes and ears, and we see that Thomas, a Christian, a disciple, says, my Lord and my God. And you're like, well, yeah, (laughs) he's Jesus. But for a first century Jewish man who's deeply rooted in the Old Testament tradition to see a physical man in front of him and say, my Lord and my God. That's a heavy statement, y'all. This physical man, you're my God. We just brush right over that. This is a weighty, weighty confession by the man Thomas. Thomas attributes to a human being that this human being is Lord. He's master. He's authority. Ultimate authority. He's Lord. But not only that, but he is God. A human being. You see, the Gospel of John's structure, I'm going to tell you why this confession is so amazing. The Gospel of John has a very unique structure. It's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Gospel of John has a unique structure. It's prologue, and then a long narrative of support, and then a conclusion, or a purpose statement, and then an epilogue. I don't know if you're much of a reader, but I'm going to explain what those things mean. The prologue are the first few pages that you usually skip. All right, The first few pages that you usually skip because the prologue is just introductory. It just says, here's uh, what's going to happen in this book. Now go read it. Well, you're like, I'm going to read the book. Why would I read the prologue? So you usually would skip that part. But the prologue is very important in the book of John. Do you remember the prologue? It's when we first started. It was the first 18 verses of this book. And John wrote down in those first 18 verses exactly what he was going to say and do in the rest of the book. And so that narrative support that he does is from chapter 1, verse 19... So 1 through 18 would be prologue. Chapter 1, verse 19, all the way until this verse right here. 29 is the end of the content of the book of John. So in a way, we finish John. That's the end of it in some ways. This is the end of the narration summary, the support of the prologue. The very next thing that we're going to look at next week is the chapter of conclusion. You ever read a book and it has a conclusion at the end. And then the conclusion acts to summarize or, or to enclose all that happened in the book. And these next two verses is what we've based the title of this study in John on, that you may have life. The very next thing that happens is that John describes why he wrote down all these things. What's the purpose? And then after that, there's an epilogue, sort of a trailing out what happens next. But this verse is the end of the narration support. Now, why do I say that? Because I want you to understand that built into this confession in verse 28 of the man Thomas is a perfect summation of the prologue. It's a perfect summation of the prologue. So turn back to John chapter 1. Turn back to John chapter 1 real quick. We're going to revisit the prologue since we're at the end. The end of the support. It's the cherry on top that perfectly returns us to the prologue. Chapter 1. Now, what I want you guys to see here, 
What I want you to see are the supports, okay? Thomas has just said, my Lord and my God. Where do we see that in the prologue? How does that bring us back? Let's look at it. Verse 1. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to jump around. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Boom. (laughs) Check. There's number one. My Lord and my God. You better believe it. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That means He has authority over all of creation. Sounds like a Lord to me, doesn't it? Check. My Lord and my God. Verse 9. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and yet the world did not know Him. The world was made through Him. Again, which means He has authority. Once again, Lord. Check. In the prologue, my Lord and my God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sounds like He became a human, right? And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. People, human beings are not full of grace and truth. But one was. God. My Lord and my God. And finally, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Check this out. He, Jesus, has made Him known. God. Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, is the perfect encapsulation of the prologue that we see at the very beginning. It's a masterpiece. So you see, Thomas's confession is the confession of the contents of this book. It's the whole purpose that John has been reading and writing all of these things. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And now what we see is that the reader, you and I, are supposed to articulate this same confession. Guys, this is what coming to faith looks like. Listen to me. This is what coming to faith looks like. It looks like you, the reader of John, being Thomas and saying, unless I see it, it's going to be hard to believe it. But that John has written these things down so that you can see the wounds of Jesus. And the appropriate response is very simple. It's the response of Thomas. My Lord and my God. Isn't that what we're all about at Christmas? Jesus, my Lord and my God. The master of my life. The greatest authority. And the worship of my life. My Lord, my God. Church, your hope in this life is not based on the ups and the downs of your circumstances. Your hope in this life is not based on how you feel any given day. Your hope in this life is based on the fact that Jesus sits on the throne and He will never vacate it. It means that whatever you do in this life, every facet of this life, is done for your authority and your Master, your Lord. And it's done for your God, the object of your worship. It means that you're a student in school, for the master and for the purpose of worship. It means that you're a husband for the purpose of worshiping God. It means making your wife happy is not the objective of your strategy as a husband. And on the vice versa, the same is true. Wives, it means that the same purpose of you being a wife is to give glory to God as a wife. Making your husband happy is not the objective of your strategy as a wife. 
The same is true of parenting. You're supposed to be a parent for the master. You're supposed to be a parent for the glory of God. And the same is true. Making your children happy is not the objective of your strategy as a parent. That's the reason you don't make candy an option for dinner. Don't make church an option for their soul's hunger. Love them well. Parent them for the glory of God. It means as you work, you're not working just to appease your boss. You're working to glorify your maker. It means the way you speak to one another. You're not just trying to, you know, be funny or tap your own ego or even stroke someone else's ego. When you talk to somebody else, your conversations matter. They matter. You know why? Because your conversation exists for the glory of God. The way that you treat one another, it matters. Because everyone exists for the glory of God. The way that you respond to things that happen in your life, they matter. They're not arbitrary. They're for the glory of God. The way that you respond to current events, you're supposed to do so for the purpose of worship. It means that your hope is not based on a second-term president or the outcome of a Senate vote. Your hope is based on the fact that Jesus serves an eternal term as the King of Kings. There's nothing in this life that can take that away. Nothing. Daily confession. My Lord and my God. Honor Him. Glorify Him in every way. And approach this Christmas season for the purpose of worship. My point is, don't just make Thomas's confession with your mouth every Sunday. Make it with your heart and with your actions every moment of every day. Now you may have made that confession a million times with your mouth but never with your heart. And maybe you never really understood what it means to say that Jesus is Lord and God. But hear me say this. You're in this place this morning so that you will. That's why you're here. You're in this place today because Jesus wants you to recognize and make the same confession that Thomas made 2,000 years ago. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. And He is God. You know, Christmas is one key place in the Gospels, the very beginning, is one key place that we see Jesus as Lord and Jesus as God and that those things suddenly collide as a little baby is born in the middle of nowhere. The Lord, the Creator of all life, entered into His own creation to do what only God could do. To be a light to a world in darkness. To be, in a sin, uh, to be sinless in a world that did not know what that looked like. Purpose. The purpose of Christmas is more than just to sing songs about a baby that was born in a manger or to decorate a Christmas tree or to give each other presents. The purpose of Christmas is that you will understand and confess with your mouth and with your heart that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is God. And at Christmas, those things went boom. And they happened again 33 years later. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is God. So what I want you to do this morning is to take hold of the light of the world. To take hold of Him. 
and to confess with Thomas this morning, my Lord and my God. We're going to sing now a song of response. We're going to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we sang when we opened the service this morning. This is one of those songs, there's really only a couple of them that I can think of off the top of my head that is just so incredibly saturated with the gospel. And so as we sing, you're not singing a Christmas jingle. You're singing a worship service song. And so join me as we sing in response. And with your heart, make confession, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.